What's an M. Night? M. Night Shyamalan, the Indian filmmaker from Philly. Oh my God, this dude's a big deal. He always you know puts some I mean? like awesome twist at the end of his movies to trick the audience. Oh yeah, yeah, like like in The Sixth Sense, you find out that the dude um, in that hairpiece the whole time, that's Bruce Willis the whole movie. That's not the twist. That's not the twist of that movie. That wasn't the twist. No. Hello, and welcome to the M. Night Shift podcast where we review and discuss the career of filmmaker M. Night Shyamalan. I'm co-host AJ Gonzalez. And I'm the other guy, Brian Connolly. It's been a long time since we've done one of these. It's been a long time. We were done. Well, we thought we would be waiting till Glass. I think the last episode we probably were talking about, like, I think Glass is coming out. Oh, man, it's going to be a while. Yeah, we were talking about theories about what Glass might be about. And it's actually not about Ira Glass or Philip Glass. It's about the character of Glass from Unbreakable, which makes more sense in an M. Night Shyamalan movie. It does. Uh, <laughs> but we're doing another episode. That doesn't come out until January. It is only November right now. But the, we found there's another Shyamalan movie that we didn't even realize was one. A secret Shyamalan movie. Uh, first made aware to us by uh, one of our Twitter followers. Uh, so thank you for that. And then confirmed by... The Blu-ray director's commentary. Now, we do not have the Blu-ray of She's All That at Vulcan Video, sadly. But uh, other internet sources, and Shyamalan himself has confirmed, he did do a rewrite of She's All That. A major rewrite is what we heard. Yeah. So we're just going to watch, we watched this movie, and we're going to talk about it, trying to figure out if you can tell that he actually wrote this movie, and then also just talk about the movie. It's It's an interesting movie to talk about. It is, and it, it's from 1999, one of the last great years for film. And humanity. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was uh, to, to quote The Matrix, to quote Morpheus, uh, you know, The Matrix like uh, replicates mankind at, in 1999 when your civilization was at its peak, or something like that. Anyway, according to The Matrix, 1999 was the peak of human civilization. That might be true. <laughs> uh, the Matrix also released in 1999. And it was the last good Matrix movie. They made a few more, but then yes. that was it. <laughs> but before we go into that, we are going to review a scotch, as we do every episode of this podcast. And uh, this time we have The Famous Grouse, which is a blended scotch whiskey. and has a beautiful painting of a grouse on it. If you don't know what a grouse is, it's a bird, and it's a red bird on this. This is a product of Scotland, of course. The finest Scotch whiskey is expertly blended and matured in seasoned oak cask for a rich, rounded sweetness. So there's a description on the back. Blending premium whiskey isn't just something we do. It has been the foundation of our craft since 1800. We bring together the finest ingredients to create a natural spirit before the passing of time imparts the wonderful flavor from our handcrafted casks. Into this, the fusion, which is in italics, of skilled craftsmen and a tenacious obsession with quality, and you arrive at our famous, rich, sweet, well-rounded whiskey. There you go. So it never worked out that anyone gave us a case of free whiskey from doing this podcast, because of the 20 people listening to this, none of them were scotch dealers, unfortunately. No, none of them worked for McClellan's <laughs> or Johnny Walker. But <laughs> we'll try it. Maybe before glass, if any of you out there ship whiskey or you know if it falls off the back of a truck yeah we'll gladly take some of it. we'll also take canadian whiskey yeah but, but preferably uh, yeah i would prefer scotch which to me is the ultimate whiskey 
It's the ultimate. Um, oh, and in other news, we're going to do another podcast. We decided that we like doing this. It's fun to go through a filmmaker's entire work and kind of analyze it and joke about it and talk about it and all these things. So we're going to do the complete films of Francis Ford Coppola starting next month. We'll start at the very beginning and just go through them all. Everything he directed, everything he wrote. Yep. And then we're changing the name of the podcast because we thought we were just doing Shyamalan. And we're like, no, we'll do yeah, more than yeah, that Yeah, this is the podcast started on a dare, which is supposed to be a lark. So the new one is going to be called, or, or we're going to rename this one too. It'll be called yeah. The Director's Wall, colon, yeah. and then The Filmmaker's Name. Yeah. Or whatever clever title we think of for the Coppola one, which we haven't thought of yet. Not yet. But, it might not be that clever, so don't, <laughs> don't get your hopes up on that. But that I'm very excited to do that. And then, of course, we'll keep checking in with Shyamalan whenever he makes something new. Of course. New. Which I heard, he's doing a TV show? Is he doing, like, a horror anthology? I, I think it's like a Tales from the Crypt. The last I heard was like that, that he was supposed to, that we talked about, was he was supposed to do Tales from the Crypt, but it fell apart. How did it fall apart? Um, the the rights to who owns EC Comics was very muddled. Hmm. So TNT decided to just not do the show. I have heard, though, on a totally unrelated note, that uh, the Twilight Zone is going to come back with Jordan Peele yes. producing. Yeah, I think Hornsell is a big again because of Black Mirror. Everybody wants to make yeah Black Mirror, a show that's good until you watch a lot of it, and then it's the most depressing thing. <laughs> It's depressing. <laughs> it's depressing, and they have like the same five stories again and again, and it's not as well done as a Twilight Zone, which also had the same five stories. You had like three Twilight Zone episodes about talking dummies, but the, one, <laughs> one of them was good. The others were not so good. And Black Mirror, like, oh my god, someone's consciousness got uploaded to something again, or they don't know that they're part of their own consciousness. Or here's an elaborate, extremely cruel punishment. But it's okay because the person that's being punished, like, murdered a child. There's a lot of murdered children in Black Mirror. If you haven't seen it, just a heads up on that. But there's some really there's some really good episodes. Uh, the one with Kelly McDonald is... That one's great. That one's great. Well, I'm sad because I think they'd, Shyamalan would work well in a horror anthology world. I feel like that. Because there's always twists. There's always, and I think him working within the confinements of like a 30 to 45 minute show would also be very good. And it would tap into what he was hoping to do with Devil, but it didn't work out. But then you could have had something that kept going. But maybe he's just fine making these Blumhouse movies, making trillions of dollars off these low budget uh, things that everyone goes to see now. Because I don't think those movies cost anything. I don't think Split cost more than $8 million. And then that movie made a lot of money. It's smart. It's a smart thing to do. So what do you think of the Scott? I think it's pretty good. I think it's good, too. Uh, I have not had famous grouse before. The famous grouse. Delicious. If I knew how to talk about scotch, I'd be able to tell you its notes. We never figured that out. Do you? Did you figure it out? <laughs> no, I did not, even though I watched a uh, multi-part <laughs> documentary on scotch. <laughs> I never figured out how to talk about it, other than uh, at the end of the day... It's just water and barley, but it's also heaven in a glass. Well, I do know that it is a smooth scotch, and that's the one way I know you can talk about scotch that is smooth. It does not have a, a powerful flavor, but it does have 
what you would look for in drinking a good scotch. It's not very, it's not weak. You know, definitely not the worst scotch we've had. So, She's All That, released January 1999 from uh, Miramax Studios. I forgot it was a Miramax movie. Yeah, to, um, to quote Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, when they find out that a movie is being made about them, they go to Ben Affleck's character from Chasing Amy, and they learn about the internet and movies and all that. <laughs> Jay says, Miramax? But I thought they only made classy shit, like the crying game and the piano, to which uh, Holden responds, well, after she's all that, it was all downhill. And this came out at the time when all the like the teen movies were big again. It's a big thing. It's, it's the biggest it had been since the '80s with all the John Hughes stuff. It was back. You had she's all that. Yeah. You had drive me crazy. You can't had, hardly wait. Can't hardly wait. Ten things I hate about you. Uh, American Pie. Boys and girls. What's that one with Cisco? Oh. Uh, get over it. No. Isn't that Drive Me Crazy? Those are both titles of movies. But is that the one with no. Cisco in it? There was also Crazy Beautiful. Yeah, it's more, more of a more teen drama. drama thriller, like Swim Fan. Swim Fan, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, it, was a t- it was a time. And, and like all of these movies, too, were sort of the launching pad for a lot of people who kept having careers post-1999. And this also led to... What I think is the first of the awful parody movies. Not another teen. Not movie. another teen movie is most directly spoofs. She's all that. Yes. Which is the best of those movies yes. of those of those types of. Yeah, like not another or just a genre yeah. movie. This is directed by Robert Iskoff or Isko. Who, before this, did a lot of just television. Yeah. Not a lot of motion pictures. And it is written by... R. Lee Fleming Jr. Yes. So he wrote an episode He wrote an episode of the Olsen Twins series, Two of Kind. Don't even know what that is. It was, yeah. it was like the, the Olsen Twins. Full House pre-New York Minute. Yeah, yeah. They were briefly part of the TGIF lineup. Oh. Yeah. I, I vaguely remember this show. He also wrote Get Over It. Yeah. And he wrote for Friends. He wrote for One Tree Hill. And the latest thing he's written is he actually created Light as a Feather, which is a, a Hulu series about girls and witchcraft. And it's a horror series. I've never even heard of that. I have not either. Who's in it? Anyone of note? I don't believe so. And I'm not connected to the internet right Are now. I'm sure that M.I. Shemlin didn't rewrite that entire thing. Ooh. <laughs> horror? I don't know. He's never done horror before, Mr. Fleming Jr. Yes. Uh, and so supposedly he wrote the script, and then, I don't know whose decision it was, Miramax or the director, had Shemlin do a major rewrite. And this was the same time that he did Stuart Little, mm-hmm. and I feel it must have been right before... Sixth Sense was like the thing. Yeah, because it makes sense that uh, Shyamalan was still under contract to Miramax, but not getting along with Harvey Weinstein. Uh, weird. Weird. That <laughs> this awful, awful person yeah, with... would not get along with, with people, actresses and actors and... In the world. In the world. But so he made Wide Awake and then nothing until... 
the Sixth Sense director-wise, writing credits he had Stuart Little and this rewrite job, which had to have come from, we've got this guy on our payroll or we have him under contract, give him something to do so we can put him to work. This must have been released before The Sixth Sense, right? Uh, yeah, Sixth Sense came out in August of 1999. Uh, this was released in January 1999. So they had it in production, I'm assuming, throughout 1998. Do you think if this was released after Sixth Sense, they would have put his name on it as one of the writers? Possibly if the Writers Guild would agree to it. Because I think it has to be like you have to have written an X amount of it, of the rewrite to actually make it your own. Yeah. And that's why when you see movie credits, when it's the and spelled out and, that's when you know there was a rewrite. But when it's just the the ampersand, ampersand, then that means they wrote it together. So that's why the Flintstones movie, there's like 20 ands because like 30 you know, groups of people wrote that movie. Gosh, and they wrote enough of it to all the merit screen credit. credit. Or they been rewrote it, rewrote it, rewrote it, rewrote it. It's not rewrote, like, rewrote. Um, like Carrie Fisher rewrote a lot of movies. Uncredited. Uncredited. John Sayles, the yeah. same thing. Like supposedly he rewrote some of Apollo 13 and things like that. But those are not considered rewrites. Those are polishes. They in Hollywood yeah. they say, oh, he polished the script up. Or Tarantino with Crimson Tide, and supposedly it's Pat. Oh, well, there right. you go. <laughs> Good old Pat. Is it a man? Is it a woman? Who cares? As long as the kids like it. <laughs> That's, that's from the critic. A character that probably wouldn't exist now in 2018. <laughs> 2018. Uh, same with men on film. Two, two sketch comedy characters in the 90s that could never exist in our more woke yeah. age. Uh, so back to She's All That. So, yes. Well, I think we will, we should look at this movie as, as if Shyamalan did write it. Mm-hmm. And what can we... At first, what can we find in it? But before we do that... Let's describe the plot. It's basically a My Fair Lady sort yes. of plot where you have Freddie Prince Jr., like the coolest dude in high school. He's like the big, he's like the most popular, coolest guy. Class president. Class president. He has his own private parking space reserved for the class president. And he's got like high grades and like all the people love him. And this is right after spring break. So everyone had just got back from spring break. And he's so excited to see his girlfriend because she went off on her spring break adventure. He did his thing, and like, they can't wait to like get back and like be the coolest popular. And they're they are seniors in high school, uh, so he's hanging out with his friends. One of which is Paul Walker, a very yeah. young, handsome Paul Walker. Young Paul Walker, Dule Hill from Psych. From Psych, Psych, yes. And they're they're like, oh man, you see your girlfriend excited, and then instantly she dumps him. This instantly, just like sorry. I went off on my own and had this adventure where I hooked up with the star of MTV's Real World, played by Matthew Lillard, who's basically playing like, who was the guy in the real world that ate all the peanut butter? Puck? He's like a Puck-esque person from the real world, where he's like, when they show scenes of him in the real world, he's farting, and everyone's like, what are you doing? And he's got these uh, quote-unquote Brando moments where he's like throwing coffee cups off the thing, and it's just like this ridiculous hammy thing. And because it's Matthew Lillard, it's a classic Matthew Lillard character of him as playing a total dipshit idiot. Total, like, like, loud, bored. Loud idiot. But she loves loves him, and they got both matching. They each got tattoos, and it was during the filming of one of those MTV Spring Break Everybody Dance. Speaking of Cisco, 
everybody dancing like just on the beach, like in front of a pool, like MTV used to do in the in the late '90s. And so Freddie Prince Jr. cannot believe that she would dump him. And so then he makes a bet with Paul Walker, where they're like, "Okay, Mr. Cool Guy, for the next last six weeks of school, leading up to prom." Paul Walker says, any lady that I pick, you have to make her into, like, the prom queen. Like, you got to, like, you, it is your job to make her, like, the coolest lady in school and, like, make her your girlfriend. And, and Freddie Prince Jr. is like, easy peasy. I'm the coolest guy in school. Like, what can go wrong? And they're like, all right, it's going to be this lady. And it's Rachel Lee Cook, who is, like, an opinionated, you know, like, artist who just hates the system and just doesn't want to be a part of anything cool or popular, doesn't give a shit about it. And so then Freddie Prince Jr. is like, well, oh, oh, no, I got my work cut out for me. She wears glasses. She and wears glasses and a ponytail. Can you believe it? How is this going to happen? And then it's a Pygmalion story, basically, where he has to, where he brings her into this different level of uh, popularity, different a different world of high, a different view of high school than she was used to. Yeah, for, um, Anna Paquin plays Freddie Prince's Freddie Prince Jr.'s younger sister, who does the actual makeover of Rachel Lee Cook, which we do not see because it was just her taking off her glasses and cutting her hair. And it's not an eighties movie, so you're not going to get the montage yeah. in the mirror of trying on the different hats. And yeah, unfortunately, um, she does the actual makeover. Freddie Prince Jr. mainly uh, takes her to all these popular events that she would not have been invited to otherwise. Keggers, yeah, Keggers—the elaborate party that takes place in some mansion, and <laughs> God, there's like so many cars and so much, so many people there, and so much drinking. A staple of every ninety late nineties teen comedy, yeah. American Pie. It was at Stifler's house, and they always would just be a party. I've never, I've never been to a party like this. There's just people everywhere, just having a great time. I've never been to a party like this. The only house party I went to, they were all after high school, and there was like five people uh, drinking in a backyard, trying to be very quiet because <laughs> we were underage. And you don't want the cops called on you to ruin your little yeah. ice cream social that you got going on. <laughs> and uh, she also introduces him to her world, which is the art world, the terrifying art world. <laughs> so the first thing that they do together is go to a performance art show that she's a part of, where Alexis Arquette, uh, when she was still a man, is on stage doing this crazy uh, performance art where he's kind of under this big tarp and he's sort of like this bulbous mass sort of thing and then he breaks apart into him and two little people and that's the performance and then she what she thinks is a, a clever trick is like i will trick freddie prince jr to come on stage and i'll show him that he's not part of this art world and oh at the backtrack the, the ruse that he has to get her to hang out with him is he's like i'm into art will you show me and tell me like how i can do art and that's sort of his way into tricking her into like becoming this popular lady and hanging out with him. And so she calls him on stage to, uh, in front of this whole audience, be like, oh, well, this guy's interested in performance art and he doesn't know what to do. So he pulls out his, and does a hacky sack routine, which is one of the better scenes in the movie where it's just Freddie Prince Jr. doing hacky sack and kind of making it about like, will I mess up? Oh, everyone's looking at me. Don't mess up. Keep it going. And then at the end, he's like, in in the end, the hacky sack always drops. It always drops to the ground. And everyone's like, brilliant! And everyone loves it. They love it. 
and he can't believe it. And he's just like, oh man, that was great. And he actually got like a thrill, like a wild rush from doing performance art. And Rachel Lee Cook can't believe it. He can't believe that it actually worked out to his benefit. And uh, so the whole movie goes along. This thing is happening, this relationship. He starts to actually have sort of feelings for her. She starts having feelings for him. She can't believe that, oh, like, I'm with this, this guy. He's not so bad. He can't believe, like, with her glasses off, she's totally beautiful. Oh, my gosh, this is crazy. But then his ex-girlfriend, uh, her relationship with Matthew Lillard falls apart. It turns real sour after he embarrasses her at this big party. And so she decides that she – and she gets dumped by him. And she wants Freddie Prince Jr. back and can't believe that he would be with his nerd art lady anyways. And then it becomes this complicated thing where Paul Walker doesn't like the idea that he's losing this bet. So he sabotages the whole thing by saying, like, telling Rachel Lee Cook, oh, you know, he's only with you because of this bet, this horrible bet that he did. And she can't believe it. And it becomes this whole big thing. And then there's the, the crescendo, the climax is at the prom where Freddie Prince Jr. is crowned prom king. And she went to prom with Paul Walker. Rachel Lee Cook goes to prom with Paul Walker. But then it turns out that Paul Walker is a total creep, too, because Rachel's uh, best friend, this guy, is in the bathroom, and Paul Walker's talking about like his, his, his uh, creepy plans with her after prom. And so they, just, they decide that the, the, the leave, she leaves prom, and then Freddie Prince Jr. also leaves prom, and he finds her at her house. And basically he's like, I actually like you. I know I did this horrible thing. I'm so sorry. But hey, like I learned a lot from you. I'm a better person now. Like let's let's be together genuinely. I can genuinely have feelings for you. And then it's like a nice happy ending. Yeah. And what happened is – and we don't see this scene. And I'm kind of disappointed we don't. But like so Freddie Prince Jr. finds out about Paul Walker's lascivious plan. He tries to find what hotel Paul Walker has taken her to. He can't. Then he just goes to uh, her house, and she's there, and she explains that um, when she figured out Paul Walker was just being a creep, she uh, blasted him with an air horn and made him deaf. <laughs> and then they kiss, and her dad, played by Kevin Pollock, turns on like the, the Christmas lights that are on outside, and it's a real romantic scene for a teen movie, I guess. But then the final scene is graduation, panning shot of the whole class, and there's Dulé Hill just kind of like nodding his head like he's listening to music, but he's not. And there's uh, Freddie Prince's ex-girlfriend in the back, and she's smoking and real pissed off. And they call, uh, the principal calls Paul Walker's name, and he can't hear it because he's deaf. <laughs> and then down the line, and now it's Freddie Prince Jr.'s turn. And apparently the bet was whoever lost had to graduate naked. Mm -hmm. So he's just wearing his graduation hat and the, uh, like the sash. And he's got a soccer ball covering his junk. And he goes up to the stage. We don't see him go up. We just see Rachel Lee Cook. And then she catches a soccer ball, implying that Freddie Prince Jr. <laughs> threw the soccer ball to her and exposed his nude body to the entire... <laughs> Outrageous! <laughs> the entire senior class. Outrageous. And she kind of uh, like uh, smiles amusedly, fade out. Movie's over. <laughs> it's a good movie. I like this movie. I've always liked this movie. I liked it when I, I first saw it. I had never seen it except for like like parts of it on TV. Really? Yeah, I'd never seen it. Um, 
but I like, knew about it because it was such a big hit with the teens, especially with the Moody Girls <laughs> at my school. I went to school with one girl who claimed to identify with Rachel Lee Cook in this movie a bit too much. But don't you think they would not like the movie because of the way that that character is manipulated? And the that's way that that was my... Like, the, whole, the whole stupid thing of like the... That was my, you take her glasses off and now she looks good. Now she's worth dating. That was my suspicion. You put their hair down and you, you make them wear fancy clothes and then they're beautiful. You think those ladies would not be happy with no. that? Um, so I think this movie's all right. I don't know if it would be good, if I would say it's good. I think it's very clever. I think it's very funny. I wonder how much of the dialogue Shyamalan wrote, because it is like a very snappy, kind of quick movie. Like, it's one of those movies where everybody's funny and everybody's clever on it. And, uh, and all the lines are really good. And I love this genre of movies. I'm just a big fan. I have, of, I have a soft spot for this genre comedy. of movie. I was in high school. I started high school 1999-2000. So this movie came out uh, my freshman year of high school. So I was like at the totally appropriate age. I love Can't Hardly Wait. I, I will unashamedly say that I love that movie. I've seen it, I don't know how many times. I've listened to the commentary of that movie, I don't know how many times. I know way more about Can't Hardly Wait than any person should ever know. And I've seen a few of those other movies, uh, the one with Mila Kunis and Kirsten Dunst. I, they all have such non-committal names, I cannot keep them apart. <laughs> I am the same, supposedly the same age as the people in this movie. I was the class of 99. So okay. this was the same time as me. Buffy, the Vampire Slayer, also class of 99. And I believe same with American Pie. I think they are yeah, also they class are, of Yeah, they are seniors, class 99. So that was a thing. All these people graduate next night. I did the same. Uh, the movie is pretty accurate to what it felt like in high school <laughs> with the way everyone looks. Though less uh, fake Slim Shadies. In 99, there was a lot of dudes with bleached blonde hair. There was. Like there was in my school. Like a lot. And then a lot of people really into... Marilyn Manson and Ben Corn, and so this movie didn't oh, go man. into that type of person. <laughs> it was a uh, Corn and Nine Inch Nails were huge at my school. But you do have two bully type characters in this movie that are like not quite Columbine type uh, outsiders, but it's it's the weird redheaded guy from uh, Angus, right? Yeah, from Angus, <laughs> he plays the Shermanator yeah, in American yeah. Pie, and it's so it's like it's him. Uh, it's it's these it's it's him and this other guy where they kill all artist T-shirt with a picture of a gun on it, which no kid would actually be allowed to wear. This is post Columbine. school, but for some reason this kid in this movie is allowed to wear that, and they uh, are these awful bullies. Um, They're awful bullies. Um, so Rachel Lee Cook's Lainey Boggs's bully, well, the person that we see actually like legit bully her. Is uh, your second favorite goth girl in mine, Clea Duvall? Wait, is she second? Who's first? Fruzable. <laughs> right? And it's pretty dark because the first scene you see all these people she in this, she tells them to kill, her kill herself. She's like, all great artists are famous after death, so you should just kill yourself. 
He's like, that's a dark thing to say. To it's really dark. And it's Clea <laughs> Duvall, who is a great actress, and she says it really fucking serious and, like, really mean. It's like, this is... I mean, you would think you, if the movie continues on this track, Lainey's bullying will only get, like, worse and worse because you start out with someone stone-cold serious saying, like, you should kill yourself. But those characters barely really come back in the no, movie. No, they come. They're, they're kind of on the side. Clea Duvall comes uh, back once at the big party where Lainey, she, Lainey she finds, finds her, her in the bathroom and she's hungover and throwing up. Yeah, and so Lainey like helps her, uh, but then also uses the makeup in her bag to paint a clown face on Clea Duvall. <laughs> Excellent revenge. Uh, and we forgot to mention there's a character played by Kieran Culkin. Yes. Who is Lainey's younger brother, and he is very excited that Freddie Prince Jr. is asking his sister out, and very excited that he's even been talked to by Freddie Prince Jr. He can't even believe that like this guy is there, and he asked him to play Sega with him, and he wants to hang out with him. And so when the bullies are picking on Kieran Culkin, Freddie Prince Jr. walks in to like thwart that. Yes, uh, Freddie Prince Jr.'s power, like his powers as the ultimate high school guy, are such. That he can command these bullies who have sprinkled pubes on <laughs> a personal pizza to get Kieran Culkin to eat it. Well, Freddie Prince makes them eat the pube pizza just by telling them to. A gross scene for a PG-13 movie. Really gross. You think that, well, no, American Pie wouldn't be out yet because this was in January. But like, this but we're, is, are we in a post-Jackass world here or is this even before Jackass? Uh, you know, 97 to 99 really blurred together. I feel in this my is head. even before Jackass, but post Fairly Brothers. Right. Was Mary was that was 98. Yes. So everyone was into semen and pubes, and that was the humor that the world was going to uh, pre Apatow. They have Kieran Culkin, and then my favorite character in the movie, Kevin Pollock, as Lainey Kieran Culkin's dad, and has the great scene, which I hope is what Shyamalan added, where he's watching Jeopardy. And giving the absolute wrong answer for every single, or giving the wrong question, I guess, to every yeah. answer that is given on Jeopardy. And it just keeps going, and it's kind of going on in the background of the scene. But I can't help but just be focused on all the wrong answers it keeps giving. Well, a good, like, four-minute sequence. Yeah, it's a running uh, joke. Um, that was one of Roger Ebert's favorite things about this movie. That, sadly, well, is not from Shyamalan. That was from, I have to assume... Kevin, Kevin Pollack, Pollack, who is a comedian. Who is a comedian and who did that exact bit in another movie. What movie did he do? I cannot remember, and I'd say that I'm not connected to the internet right now. <laughs> but uh, so I don't know if Shyamalan or Arlie or Arlie Fleming like saw that and was like, hey, I want him to do that in this movie, or if Kevin Pollack was like, hey, I'm gonna do this again. Kevin Pollack is great. And if you haven't seen his uh, Albert Brooks impersonation, it is one of the best. He does an amazing Christopher Walken Christopher impersonation. Walken, yeah, yeah. He is one of the only funny moments in the documentary The Aristocrats. Oh, you don't like that movie? No, it's it's so much. You're not shocked by how outrageous Bob Saget is, despite that he's on show. Oh my for god! Families. Like to me, that's that the whole documentary because it's just people telling us one dirty joke as dirty as they can. I just kind of tap out on that and the. Two moments I thought were really funny in that movie were when Billy Conley tells a joke, completely clean, 
And when Kevin Pollack tells a joke, because he tells the aristocrats joke as Christopher Walken, that he was hanging out with Christopher Walken, and Christopher Walken said, my uncle is a talent agent. And this person comes in, and then he does the whole aristocrats joke. So my uncle says, that's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) His uh, stand-up special, there's a Kevin Pollack stand-up special that's great. And he has a whole joke about the music of the Mario Brothers NES game. And it's <laughs> an amazing thing to hear a man in his like late 50s uh, tell a joke about. Yeah. Kevin, people, Kevin Pollack also one of the first people to blaze away podcast-wise. He had the Kevin Pollack chat show. Yeah, when was that? Uh, it was in the early days of the internet because I listened to that on my desktop computer. But it's the same format as Mark Maron's WTF. The movie that Kevin Pollack originally did the Jeopardy bit in was Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. What the heck is that? I have no idea. I assume, assume it's I'm, a movie. I'm assuming it's a Pulp Fiction ripoff. Hmm. Doesn't it sound like it would be? Yeah. With a title like that? That it sounds like a, like cool guys running around with guns sort of movie? It definitely sounds like an indie movie. <laughs> but yeah, Kevin Paul, like, Jeopardy part is great. Um, one of my least favorite parts of this movie, because it's I hate this in anything except for Wet Hot American Summer, is the school has an announcer. The school has a dedicated MASH-style announcer, just someone calling out the shots and giving exposition at the beginning of each scene. And in this movie, it is Usher. Yes. Yes, it is Usher. (laughs) Uh, Um, I love Usher, and they clearly just got him for a day, and they put him in this little booth, and it's like, okay, you're the DJ who's just kind of talking about things. Yeah, just explaining information like, oh, like, Zach Seiler just got dissed by his girlfriend or whatever. You know, they try to, like, hip up the language. There's... The dialogue in this movie is great to watch as someone that used to be a young person in the late 90s, early 2000s. <laughs> um, the phrase bump monkeys is used to mean sex. Nobody ever said that. Bump monkeys. Uh, <laughs> when Freddie Prince is lamenting his turn from like having it all to now having everything except for like a hot girlfriend as like, next thing you know, you're Zach Seiler, bitch boy. Uh, Anna Paquin refers to him because he doesn't know anything about like, well, how do you get a girl like if she's not just already into you? And she's like, look, you'll know about women because you're already this bitch magnet. Nobody says this. Nobody talks like this. Uh, There's also, of course, the titular She's All That Rap. Yeah. Yeah. Where these two guys are uh, they're rapping the events of the movie up to that point. To me, that's something M. Night must have added, because he loves people rapping. Yeah, and if, if they, they rap the plot of the movie, and they work in the title. One of the few times where the film rap is actually a part of the actual movie. Usually it's just doing yes. the end credits. Yes. Like, can you think of another instance where someone in the movie is rapping the song? I guess you get close to Secret of the Ooze with uh, mm. the allies doing the, yes. tr- the ninja rap. Yes. But rarely is it just someone in the movie being like, I'm going to do the rap. No, not of the movie. All I can think of is movies that are kind of centered around music. Well, this like, one is uh, not. No. But like, I feel that could have been an Eminem edition because he, he, he clearly is a fan of rap music. He clearly likes characters into hip hop. You have the, the brother in the visit who does a rap at the end of that. He does his own end credits rap for that one. You have the part in uh, Split where. 
uh, James McAvoy takes the takes her to, takes the lady to his bedroom and plays like the kind of hip hop type music while he's yeah. dancing. So that feels like something that's very much a part of when M Night was maybe in high school, or or he wishes that he was into if he was in high school in the nineties. Yes, I mean he's a big fan. I think the one scene while I was watching it that stood out to me, like I feel like this is an M Night uh, scene, is when uh, the ex girlfriend Taylor, played by Jodie Lynn O'Keefe. Whom I've never heard of and don't know who that is. Uh, she was in some episodes of Dharma and Greg. That's, that's that's why she looked familiar to me. Her, it's her and Matthew Lillard, and they're just hanging out, and they are watching one of his real-world episodes. And he's going on about, like, look, look, now I do this. Like, now I give them Brando. And he's just, like, loving his, perfor- loving his performance. Even though the real world, you're supposed to be yourself. But he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, look, look, look at this. <laughs> to me, that really reminded me of Tommy Tomasino from The Sixth Sense, the uh, uh, snotty bully kid mm-hmm. who was in was a pop, a com- syrup, commercial? pop syrup commercial <laughs> and like has all these criticisms about the high school, about the you know, middle school play that they're doing. <laughs> There's really not a lot in this movie that feels like an M. Night movie. There's no twist. There's nothing scary. It doesn't have the level of humanity that his movies tend to have or spirituality that his movies have. I feel like even Stuart Little feels more like an M. Night Shyamalan movie than this does. It gets a little dark. It gets dark, it's it's sad, and separated from his family and all that stuff. But like this, it just, it is a, you know... Plot-wise, run-of-the-mill team comedy. It's just one of the very good ones. But there's nothing that I feel like, unless he really enriched the script, just being a better writer than most people. So it's just like maybe he's added a lot of, of well, like the good character bits and like having like maybe he added the jokes. I don't know. I can only speculate. Well, let but, me uh, read an excerpt from Roger Ebert's review of this movie. How many stars out of four? He gave it two and a half. Okay, so that's like a C, you know, C yeah. plus, B minus, um, maybe. So Roger Ebert writes, Sometimes while you're watching a movie, you can sense the presence of a wicked intelligence slipping zingers into a formula plot. I had that feeling all during She's All That, which is not based on a blindingly original idea. Uh, he describes the plot and then says... There's fun in the plot, but there's more fun around the edges, suggesting that the structure of this movie is all right. But here and there, there are these 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 bright spots and these funny moments. I feel like, uh, and of course, at that time, no one knew who M. Night Shyamalan was, and he remained unknown as a writer on this <laughs> until a few years ago. So he just credits the the uh, the credited screenwriter and the director. For those moments that he likes. But I have to assume maybe he's responding to the stuff that Shyamalan added in, which is the stuff that I guess I was responding to that scene with Matthew Lillard. The uh, the rap definitely does have a Shyamalan <laughs> feel to it. I, there are scenes where he tries to en- like enrich the characters, uh, like the, the hacky sack performance. Mm-hmm. No matter what, the hacky sack is just going to drop. <laughs> But we can only speculate because we don't know. Maybe Arlie Fleming Jr. also added these things too. Maybe he is a smart, yeah. smart guy. Like we know him as much as a human being as we do M. Night Shyamalan. We just have seen less of his work. So it's possible that that was there in the original script. Now I would feel like if someone did a major rewrite 
That usually means that you kind of just go over the whole darn thing. <laughs> yeah. You're not just doing a polis. You're doing the whole there, thing. It, it's all weird, like, stuff with contracts and WGA. Like, um, sometimes a writer will have just a really good agent or a really good deal, so their name stays on a movie no matter what. Um, Ava DuVernay is credited as a co-writer of Selma, even though she entirely rewrote the, the script of Selma herself and never once met with the other person that's credited as a writer. He just had this really solid deal where she couldn't get his name off the movie. <laughs> so she's credited as a co-writer. Huh. Uh, and she rewrote the speeches of Martin Luther King Jr. because the rights to them are owned by another filmmaker who as of yet and probably never will make a movie about Martin Luther How King. Weird. Steven you know. Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> How are you getting on the rights of a, of a speech that wasn't yours? It's, it, it's weird. I imagine there's something like his family signed a deal with Steven Spielberg. Mm. And, you know, he's just off making whatever. The West Side Story remake? Yeah. <laughs> off making The Adventures of Tintin. Did, did, uh, I think you told me that Samuel has definitely admitted that he's rewritten the script. Yes, he, um, according to Wikipedia, and if you can't trust them, you can't trust, <laughs> right? According to Wikipedia, he admit he mentioned it in an interview that he did a rewrite of uh, She's All That. And then there was a, according to Wikipedia, Arlie Fleming said on Twitter, like, no, he didn't write it. Or like, I rewrote it again after he did. But then that tweet was deleted and no further follow-up was made. According to someone who listened to the director's commentary on the Blu-ray, the director says that Shyamalan did a rewrite and his rewrite is what got the movie Greenlit. And then he mentioned it on the Norm Macdonald yes, uh, Norm- show that's on Netflix right yes, now. Yes, on Norm Macdonald has a show. He interviews Shyamalan, says, like, so like you like you wrote She's All That. He says almost like shyly, like I, I did a rewrite on it. And then since it's Norm Macdonald, he rambles on to something else <laughs> in his absurd genius comedy way they didn't get deep into they did not get deep into it man who owns the blu-ray if she's all that even though because i have the dvd and there's no commentary track on it so i like that someone was was willing to pay to record a commentary for the blu-ray of it with the director is it just the director alone is he with i mean it's not the screenwriter the fly screen wouldn't want to hear about Shyamalan rewriting i I think uh, it's the director on on their own uh, which is the impression I got from, again, Wikipedia. Now, the, all, the only special features on the DVD were, of course, the Sixpence None the Richer music video. Which, I mean, you all know the song. If you heard it on the radio a million times, they still play on the radio. They still the, play on the radio. Touch me, da 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 Yeah, like that yeah. song. Yeah. Um, Kiss Me is... Kiss Me. <laughs> <laughs> I like that song. I like... Sixpence none the rich. And the video is just them hanging out on the couch, and they're all—it's like it's very Ten Thousand Maniacs feeling. In a way. They're they're all squished yeah. together on um on a, like, on a, a, like, a, a, like on a swing on a bench or, or something. And then Freddie Prince Jr. and Rachel Lee Cook show up. Yeah. On like the far end of the bench, and then one of them is holding a portable TV, and on it he's watching. <laughs> She's all that. Back when they used to make hit songs for movies. 
Yeah. And had or, videos where they edited scenes from the movie. God, those music videos are always so awkward. Yeah, because you just know, well, I bet 50% at least of it will be just scenes from the movie, and then the band's just kind of there. And oftentimes, it's a redo of a video that already existed, but then the song was in the movie, and the movie's popular, or they want yeah. to listen, and they're like, oh, we'll put the... Like um, Elliot Smith's video from Miss Misery, which is just him walking through the street singing a song. He's wearing a white suit. But then that song, it's the song for Good Will Hunting nominated for... Best original song at the Oscars. Then the, then the music video just has random scenes of Goodwill Hunting spliced in at random moments. Which is a really thrilling movie to watch with the sound off of just like seeing people sitting around. No, and it's really, it's really physically in that movie. Yeah, There's a lot of people talking in a room. So seeing that in a music video, not so compelling. The best of the music videos that incorporate version of the movie, in my opinion, is the Big Trouble Little China video. Which is John Carpenter and his band, the Coupe de Villes, I believe, is what they were called. <laughs> Playing music, John Carpenter's wearing this amazing, like, like large robe, and he sings the song, and they cut in scenes from Big Trouble in China, and it's incre- it's an incredible video. Oh, and let's not forget the is it Beyond Reanimator? Oh yes. <laughs> The, the Move Those Bones, Bones, Bones is like a Euro techno song. Yes, Reanimate uh, Your Feet. Reanimate Your Feet. And that has good footage edited while this guy who looks like a Chris Kattan character with like spiky hair, late 90s, yes. does this great in know, our, Euro techno uh, song. In, that, in our era of, of Vulcan video, uh, we're, we're still around at the store. But sadly, this tradition has, I think, faded away. We watched it a few weeks ago. Okay, you did? Good. No, we did. No, it's still, we, we introduced it to some Good, people. it is tradition that good... Vulcan video, where you watch that music video, you hit, like, endless repeat on the DVD player, <laughs> and you watch it until you cannot stand it anymore, which video. which doesn't happen. Yeah, I can watch that video for hours. <laughs> I think the longest I ever watched it was for, like, two and a half hours. I did, I did a full six once. Whoa. I did a full... Night shift, playing it from the moment I got in to the moment we closed. That was a proud moment in my life. The only, maybe Excellent. the only accomplishment I've ever had in my sad existence. <laughs> um, so back to this movie. They're not, there's not really a lot of M. Night stuff in here. He clearly got paid to rewrite a thing. He's a good writer, and he just did a good job of rewriting this thing. And who knows what was left in there? Who knows what made it? Who knows if he ever even watched the damn movie? Probably not. I'm guessing he's never seen this movie. Why would he? Why would he care? He got paid some money. Soon after this came out, he was like the toast of Hollywood. Yeah. He never mentioned this movie unless it was brought up a few times. Whatever it is brought up, he's very sheepish about it. He's very like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, just read about it. Okay, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it a little bit. Um, another great thing about this movie, as we mentioned earlier, is that there's so many famous people before they're famous, while they're famous, famous only at this time. The cast is crazy, other than what we've already talked about. You also have Little Kim is in it, which is really weird to see Little Kim play one of uh, Freddie Prince Jr.'s friends. You have Gabrielle Union yep. in there. You have, I'm going to say, I always say his name wrong, Milo Vermintigli. How do you say his damn name? Vermintigli? I have no idea. Well, we all know what we're talking about from uh, you know Gilmore Girls and This Is Us. Is that the name of the popular uh, show? Yeah, that's, that's the show everyone yeah. loves. 
He's in it as a member of uh, the soccer team that comes and cleans the house of Rachel Lee Cook. He hires a bunch of people. To, he brings a bunch of people over to clean her house so they can go on a date. Um, Ventimiglia would be my guess. Ventimiglia? I don't know. Some Italian, American. Uh, Tim Matheson. Tim Matheson plays Freddie Prince Jr.'s dad. He is the tough dad who wants his son to go to a great Ivy League college, just like he did, which is funny because we all know Tim Matheson from Animal House, uh, the greatest college movie of all time. This has to Uh, take place in the Animal House universe. Do you think it's the same character? And then he... uh, um, Many I, years later, once to you know, I think IMDb trivia says that his his like epilogue card for his character is that he like moved to California mm. and became a lawyer or whatever. He became whatever job that his character in this movie has. It has to be him. Yeah, there you go. Of course, we had Paul Walker, as I said earlier. Paul Walker was great. Like Paul Walker's great, and you know, this is like well before. Fast and Furious fame, but he—he's someone that's like so handsome and like charming, even as he's being the villain of the movie. That you know, like this guy, like this—this this is a leading man. This is not like second fiddle to hard. Freddie Prince Jr. Like we need to get this guy as the lead of his own movie. It's hard. It's hard to watch those parts of the movie because I can't buy him being a villain for a second. Hey, it's it's, it's like Keanu Reeves, or just like. You just seem so nice. You just seem like such a nice guy. I yeah. can't buy you as a bad person in a movie. Like as good of an actor as you are, you just you just can't help but have this. Yeah, Paul Walker's know, own nicety. Not, not anything like, from yeah. the script or the direction. No matter you know who wrote the most of it, but it's just Paul Walker's natural charisma makes it feel at first like this is a friendly bet. Like this isn't some. I don't have some. Uh, uh, like diabolical scheme to humiliate this guy yeah. that I don't like. Like this is like no friendly. Like okay, like you say that like all oh, you can take some girl and turn her into the next prom queen. All right, fine. It's a bet, and I pick her. We also get a Sarah Michelle Gellar cameo in this cafeteria in a cafeteria scene. She of course went on to marry Freddie Prince Jr. Mm-hmm. And then that means that three people in this movie were in the Scooby Doo movies because yes. we have Matthew Lillard. Freddie Prince Jr. and Sarah Michelle Gellar. Uh, funny enough, this movie's high school is the same high school from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, filmed during the same time yeah. as as that show. What if this is what the other kids at Sunnyvale are doing? Could be. Yeah. You never really know I mean, what they're up to. Yeah. It's very possible. This is the normal teen life that Buffy longs for. <laughs> right. I mean, her cameo, they don't say her name. It's a real brief thing. Yeah, she doesn't even speak. Karen Culkin is rolling around the cafeteria on roller blades, I have to assume. We don't see his feet, but it's the 90s, so it's roller blades, I'm sure. <laughs> and he's grinding pepper for people. And he offers to grind Sarah Michelle Gellar some pepper, and she just like shakes her head. <laughs> so, speaking of a lot of people being in Scooby Doo, uh, Dulé Hill went on to. Be the co-star of Psych. A great show, if you haven't uh, seen it. Which featured Rachel Lee Cook as the girlfriend of James Roday, the other co-star in Psych. And Freddie Prince Jr. also had a, uh, he was a guest star on an episode of Psych. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. So maybe everyone just loves that guy. Yeah. And it's like, I'll come out. I love Dulé Hill. That Psych is a great show. It's very fun. They have an amazing Twin Peaks episode. They do. And if you're a fan of Twin Peaks... 
it's just it's bringing in a lot of the cast from Twin Peaks, and it just has a tone of Twin Peaks. It's, they're having a lot of fun. It's very, very, very good. It's very love. Yeah, it's a very, very enjoyable show. It's got a quick pace to it. It's very funny, with and it rarely ever gets uh, raunchy or TV fourteen even. And it was a um, USA show. Yeah, it was too, a USA show. Shocking, so it doesn't get it, It's a show that still holds. It's been off the air for a few years, but it still holds up. So the dumbest part of this movie, my vote, goes to the choreographed dance to Fat Boy Slim's Rockefeller Skate, <laughs> uh, which was featured very prominently in the trailer for this movie. I remember when the movie came out, the because tra- that song was such a hit, and that this was a time when. That kind of music was like new, and everyone's like, "Ooh, electronic music! Ooh, like sampling! Ooh, like DJs!" And so, Rockefeller Skank, they play a lot of it in the movie, and it's like one of those scenes where I didn't know as if there was a dance that went to that song that everyone just knew. Everyone's just kind of doing the same. Well, Usher, as as not only the school announcer but as the DJ of the prom, he says, "Like, all right, y'all, now let's do that dance I showed you," implying. That's a thing. Implying this. When did he show them this dance? When would that have happened? It implies this whole other movie, where everyone in the school <laughs> showed up somewhere showed to up somewhere. learn how to dance. To learn how to dance. <laughs> the Rockefeller Skank. Yes. That's what that song's called, right? I have no idea. I think that, I thought it was just called Funk Soul Brother. Now, I thought it was called Rockefeller Skank. I, I, I would, would just call it Funk Soul Brother because that gets repeated the most in the song. Check it out now. Brother, <laughs> and everybody's dancing, and all the women are like twirling their hair, and all the guys, like everyone's just doing the same little weird dance. I wonder if they were trying to think like this will be the this is the kids' little. I don't know about you. I I did. I skipped my senior prom because the 200th episode of Cops was on. So of course, gonna <laughs> miss that. That kind of anniversary, man. And no women liked me, and I would have never gone with anybody. But the few dances that I did go to, zero choreographed dancing. Uh, Though this did get it right in that in the late 90s, there were no live bands playing the dances. Like in the 80s, there's always like the band that's actually playing mm-hmm. and it's just one, it's just a guy playing CDs. That's the, the, the grim reality of actual high school dancing. At my senior prom, there was no choreographed dancing. There was a guy who wore like a white uh, John Travolta Saturday, Saturday Night Fever-esque suit and he like made like he was going to do a big solo dance number and people started to gather around like they started to form a circle and then he backed out what a jerk and it went back into the crowd do you think he never had a plan or did he whip out i think he never had a plan i doubt that this person would know what saturday night fever was yeah was it wait, he wearing like the outfit no i mean not the outfit. a similar outfit Dean Siskel was buried in that outfit. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. Because his favorite movie was Saturday Night Fever, and he owned the actual outfit from Saturday Night Fever, and supposedly he was buried in that outfit. Speaking of Gene Siskel, actually, fun factoid, this movie, She's All That, was the last written review that Gene Gene Siskel did. Yeah. Before his sad... It was a... it was a favorable review. He gave it three stars. And at this point, I think Siskel had... He was not reviewing movies every week. Well, he was not reviewing movies as often because he was very ill. Mm-hmm. But I think at that point, his career, instead of reviewing movies every week like Ebert was doing, he had more of like a column where he picked a movie. And he liked this movie. He said, our flick of the week is She's All That. 
a high school drama that accurately reflects the intense pressures that 17-year-olds feel about their senior prom, for whom are they going with, and to what direction their lives will take afterward. Fortunately, what's missing from this example of this generation of teenage romances is a dark element of mayhem or malevolence. Refreshingly, no one dies. This, then, is the sunniest high school picture since Clueless, although it lacks that film's topical sense of humor. Rachel Lee Cook as Lainey, the plain Jane, is forced to demonstrate the biggest emotional range as a character, and she is equal to the assignment. I look forward to seeing her in her next picture. Was her ne- when was she in Josephine the Pussycats? That, that was 2001. That movie's great. I that's a great movie. I love that movie. Everyone, I do. Everyone should love that movie. That no, that's a smart subversive movie. That's a, if you haven't seen Josephine the Pussycats. I have not sat down and watched it proper in a while, though I watched it at work a lot to the delight of coworkers and customers alike. Uh, Parker Posey is in it, and she is amazing, as she always is, but always. she's especially amazing. What What happened to her? What happened to Rachel Lee Cook? So she... What, what is she doing these days? She's doing voiceover work mostly. Okay. Uh, Freddie Prince Jr. also doing voice voiceover work mostly. What was the last sort of big thing she was in that people would have known her from. Because, like, I know her from this and Josie the Pussycat, and then I feel that was kind of, like, it. Like, I don't remember anything beyond 2001, 2002. Um, yeah, I mean, aside from her... Aside from her having a recurring role on Psych, I hadn't seen her in a long time. Um, Freddie Prince Jr., I also haven't seen in a long time, but, like, he's busy being a dad. He's married to Sarah Michelle Gellar, who clearly... Brings home the bacon. <laughs> <laughs> She's got Buffy residuals coming yeah, in. Yeah, forever man. for the rest of your life. And if they stop coming in, she can just start going to conventions, you know? Yeah, right. That's where you rake the real money. Uh, so, uh, so Rachel Lee Cook has been on some, she was on some TV shows aside from Psych. She was on the show Las Vegas. She was in the miniseries Into the West. She was in, she's in some movies I ain't never heard of. The Big Empty. Scorched, 29 Palms I've maybe heard of. She was in, and then uh, I'm looking at IMDb back in the early 2000s, and now these are like the teen movies she was in, like Blow Dry with Josh Hartnett. What the heck is Blow Dry? Josh Hartnett is someone, he's peripherally involved with uh, some sort of hair salon because the cover is him holding a a hair dryer and Rachel Lee Cook standing behind him. So is it like shampoo for Generation Y? Yeah, I would have. I'd have to assume so. Like, just as politically subversive as shampoo is. Oh man, remember that movie where Josh Hartman had to wait forty days to have sex? Can you believe it? Having to wait forty days <laughs> to have sex with a person that is crazy. It's a problem, surely we can all relate to. <laughs> going mad. Forty whole days. It's like a month and then a week and a half. <laughs> Oh, speaking of Josh Hartnett, he's in the faculty that Usher is in. That's another great late 90s teen movie. That's like sci-fi comedy teen movie. That movie's good. That movie, I haven't seen Written by Kevin Williamson. That's a great movie. I haven't seen that since the beginning. And Cleo Duvall is in that movie, too. Yeah, there you go. She is. Everybody's right. Well, is there anything else to talk about this movie with? I feel like we rambled and raved a lot. It's been a while since we've done a podcast. You know, it's a lot of. It's been a while since we've had Scott, so we're we're all over the place on this one. But you know, 
okay. Yeah, we had to we had to get back into the saddle. Um, you know, we didn't want to uh, be you know grinding gears, stalling out in the middle of uh, in the middle of reviewing Glass. Or no, starting, we got to be on top of that. We're starting one. Coppola movies. Uh, I guess I wanted the only other thing I want to mention is that this came out in 1999. The last great year of motion pictures. Yeah, so great motion picture years. You've got 1939. You've got... Wait, what was it? Why was 1939? Was that Gone with the Wind? Gone with the Wind, Wizard of the Boss, Goodbye, Mr. Chips, Love Affair. Uh, then you have 1994. Oh, yeah, Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction, Forrest Gump, Shawshank, Shawshank Redemption. Redemption. Quiz Show. Um, Wait, wasn't Die Hard with Vengeance 94? Or was that 93? Or was that 95? I can't remember. I think Lion King may have been 94 as Definite, well. That Lion King was definitely 94. So then you have 1999. Blair Witch Project, yes. I remember. Blair Witch Project, Sixth Sense. American Beauty. Matrix. Fight Club. Fight Club. Uh, the Mummy, which is included in this list. That's uh, not one of the great movies of 1999. It's fun, and it's the first time I saw Rachel Weisz. So okay. that that means right. something. You've got American Pie. You've got The Green Mile. You've got Being John Malkovich. Uh, the 1999 version of The Haunting should not be on this list. Ooh, that movie's bad. <laughs> <laughs> that movie downloaded a ghost. Yeah. terrible. <laughs> you have Office Space, Eyes Wide Shut. Ooh. Toy Story 2, Magnolia, Any Given Sunday, Sleepy Hollow, Notting Hill, The Iron Giant, Cider House Rules, Big Daddy. Who tells him Mr. Ripley was 99? Galaxy Quest? Galaxy Quest. Yeah. Never Been Kissed. Election? Election, Man on the Moon. Wild Wild West, which is a great movie. All speaking of rap songs that talk about the movie. Yeah, it's um it's one of the best movies where Kevin Klein impersonates the president. The other would be Dave. Which I'm gonna <laughs> which having never seen, I'm gonna say is the better of the two Kevin Klein impersonates the president movies. Oh, Phantom Menace was 99, right? Wasn't that 99? Yes, Phantom Menace. Yeah. Three uh, Kings, Dogma. Girl Interrupted, South Park movie. Oh, what? Really? Uh, South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. Boondock Saints, wasn't that 99? Yes, I think it was. Yeah. The Insider, Cruel Intentions, October Sky, House on Haunted Hill, which is actually a pretty creepy movie from what I remember, even though it does feature... A Ghost Chris Kattan. <laughs> is it the remake of the William Castle movie? Yeah. Why did that happen? Virgin Suicide is 99. Oh, that's one of my favorite movies. That's a good teen movie. Same with um, Never Been Kissed with uh, Drew Barrymore. That's a oh, good movie. Drop Dead Gorgeous. Oh, I love that movie. That, movie that is good. a good, great, subversive movie. You get Cruel Intentions in 99. That's a, a good erotic, the rare erotic thriller teen movie because it's a little inappropriate. Another movie that's also about teens making a bet and playing like puppet master with the lives of, <laughs> of a brunette girl. And isn't it also based on Dangerous Liaisons, yes. right? The it, yes, it's based on a classy... Uh, like period made a nice story. Easy movie. Yeah, and that was good. I that was the first year where I really tried to Me see too. Bring everything in, in the theater. Bringing out the dead, also nineteen ninety nine. Is that it? Yeah, um, that was it. Was the first uh, year where I was remember being like really into movies, and it might be one of the only years where the best picture nominees were all. Amazing movies. Really? Um, All of them? 
I say yes. What, what, what was Night what Even? Was it? So, other, so American Beauty won. American Beauty won. And I still say it's a good movie. Even though now it's extra keep creepy because Kevin Spacey is in it. And um, I'm lusting after someone in high school. Yeah. Dude, yeah <laughs> it's, it's, it's so creepy. Now, American Beauty had Cider House Rules, The Green Mile, Sixth Sense, and The Insider. I've never seen Cider House Rules. That is also one of my favorite, like, personal favorite movies that means a lot to me. It's why I decided to go to college out of state because I had to go see the world. The is way, that what that movie's about? Yeah, The Way Homer leaves the orphanage and goes to see the world. Is the Green Mile good? I've never seen that one either. I know people don't like that and some people really like that. Green Mile is it good. It looked a little schmaltzy. I mean, it does get schmaltzy. three hours long. It gets schmaltzy in the way that Stephen King, when not being horrifying, does get schmaltzy. The way he sometimes, when he doesn't do like dark, uh, you know, Pet cemetery Carrie-style endings, he will do the mega happy ending. Like the ending of the TV movie version of The Shining. Yeah. So <laughs> I, this movie does not have the mega happy ending, but it has like the mega sentimental ending uh, that is like, it almost feels like a Spielberg movie. So it's crazy. This came out in January. And then you have Sixth Sense comes out near the end of the year and is like a huge, like the biggest movie ever yeah. at the time, it feels like. So what a wild year for M. Night to start with like, because he must have been filming The Sixth Sense when this movie came out. Yeah. Right? Like if it was January and they probably wrapped before summer. Uh, and because you said it came out in August? Yeah, August 6th, which was his birthday. So they, yeah, so they'd be maybe just fil- finishing filming. So what a what a wild year in '99 was yeah. for him. Just be like feeling because he'd probably feel good rewriting a movie that is out, and you can kind of be like, oh, that did well, well. and that became joke. and people like that movie. Okay, both and, of those movies became like cultural touchstones, one more lasting than the other. But like, she's all that was like, oh, it was a big deal for teens. Mm-hmm. It really was. Um, um, you know, like if teens were not young enough to have seen My Fair Lady or Pygmalion. <laughs> I wonder what if there's any other movies that M. Night rewrote or polished that we don't know about yet. He's like, this is modest about it. Like, or he, under contract, wasn't allowed yeah. to say that he worked on. It's a kind of situation where I'd have to imagine you would just have to ask him about every movie and see if he answers yes or no, because he's not going to volunteer this information. What movies? Well, is this one he did, because it was the, the original interview where we talked about this, he said... Oh yeah, and I did I did some script work in the nineties and then the, the interviewer, and I forget where this was, uh, was like, what, what was the movie? What was the movie? And he's like, Oh, it was she's all that and the guy's like, What? So who knows what else he helped make. But uh, I was glad to rewatch this movie. I'm I'm glad to have seen it. Um, I'm glad that you finally watched this movie. Do you think he will get any more work doing this type of thing? Or he, he makes enough money now as a filmmaker that he doesn't need to do any rewrite. He certainly doesn't need, to take, he doesn't need to take that. He doesn't need to take rewrite work. No. But it would be it would be interesting to see like uh, a movie like this, like a, a romantic comedy, a character based romantic comedy from Shyamalan. So we've had like big budget studio horror movies and thrillers, and he did big budget comic book movies, which were not good because he is best at characters. Because Sixth Sense, I mean, goes aside, it's mostly just 
a little kid talking to a grown-up and the grown-up talking to a little kid. So it would be interesting to see him do, maybe not a teen comedy, because who knows what the teens are up to these days. God, I don't know. Oh, boy. But if he just did a romantic romantic comedy, like Paul Thomas Anderson doing Punch Drunk Love. I think every filmmaker should do one of each type of I like I like I like should, the idea of like you should make a you have to like there should be a checklist that you're given if you make your first movie and you make it to that level then like all right you have to make it through this checklist you got to do a horror movie you got to do an action movie you got to do a comedy that's what's you great make, that's what's great about Danny Boyle what if each yeah Danny Boyle is very much that guy and he nails it every time he's like I'm doing my sci-fi movie I'm doing my horror movie I'm doing my romantic comedy I'm um, doing my thriller. Yeah. I'm doing my like crime noir movie, and I feel that's when you can really see because like the Oscars are a joke. Like you can't like I think Woody Allen like the reason why he didn't will go to the Oscars is like it's not like a race. You can't tell who the fastest is. Like the idea of the best picture is a silly idea. It's just like it's like it's it's just a matter of opinion. It doesn't really mean anything. You don't really know who the best is, but. If every filmmaker did one of each type of genre, then that would be a good way to gauge the quality of that filmmaker. And it's just interesting to see. Like, that's why I love when I first saw The Life Aquatic, I loved it because that movie had gunplay in it. There's that scene where they round the corner and Jeff Goldblum's there at the table with the guys who have been holding hostage mm-hmm. and then there's like this crazy gunplay. And I remember being so excited, being like, wow, this is Wes Anderson filming the scene of people shooting guns at each other. He's never done this before. This is so exciting. Oh, like, oh gosh, this is great. Like, this is his version of an action scene. Or when you first saw Kill Bill, and you're like, this is Tarantino doing an actual, like, legit action scene. Like, how does he direct, like, an action sequence? And it's so exciting to see people do that. And I I would love to They bring their own personal artistic flair to an established genre. Because there really is no rules. It's just like, it's like, how do you want to do it? There's Western, so there has to be horses in it, but Tarantino's Western is all people sitting and talking to each other <laughs> and making really long monologues. They should make the Oscars like this 24-hour film contest where it's like, all right, you guys have proven to be good directors this year, pretty good directors, you're turning to good movies. Here is the same five-page script. You all have a week to make it, and then we'll see who the best director is. <laughs> who made the better movie with the same material like, even the same people, like, you have the same actors, same cinematographer, but, like, you as a filmmaker, like, what are you going to change to make it different? Well, I mean, Shemelin sadly hasn't quite done everything, but maybe this is the closest we'll get to him doing a romantic uh, comedy. Yeah. He has a script that he wrote that he keeps saying that he'll make with Bruce Willis that he wrote, like, before Sixth Sense that I think is supposed to be like a romantic sort of thing. Right. Oh, yeah. It's, um, it's a movie. Last I heard, 20th Century Fox owned that script, and now Disney owns Fox, and he used to work with Disney, so maybe it could happen. Uh, Bruce Willis would play a, a man that's recovering from the death of his wife, and he decides to walk across the country and has, you know... Relationships and adventures. Yeah. And- so it's like more of a straightforward movie for M. Night. Yeah. But I would still love to see that. I think that would be Yeah, I would too. Who knows? It'll be interesting when Glass comes out in January, as we can only speculate what that will be like. Yeah. Like, Though, what will that movie... So you haven't been watching trailers for it. I refuse to watch any trailer because I'm going to wa- I know I'm going to watch it. 
And I, I just uh, want to be surprised. I've seen trailers. Movies. I've seen trailers just by watching other movies. And each trailer I see gives away more and more of the movies. So at the last trailer I saw, I felt like, is this the whole movie? Like, stop <laughs> showing me stuff. I, I, I wish I hadn't seen as many trailers for Glass as I have. I think it's going to be a hit. I think January is such a dead zone for movies. Like, you just it's post-Oscar, post-holiday. And I feel like this will be the movie everyone sees because everyone loves Unbreakable. And Split wasn't a hit in its way. It didn't make millions and millions of dollars, but it made a lot. Like, it did very well. Yeah. Um, and I think that that'll be a movie. That It'll be an interesting... Because it it's an interesting phase that Shyamalan is in right now, where he's making movies for Blumhouse, and he's keeping the budget small. And the smaller he keeps the budget, the more f- creative freedom he has. Mm-hmm. But now he's going to tie it into one of his big-budget studio movies and i'm just curious like how it's gonna go it definitely looks like like a blumhouse style movie Mm -hmm. i'm excited i can't wait but in the meantime tune in to our first coppola episode which will be next month yes uh the the director's wall colon clever title to be decided later and we will be not doing scotch, but we will be doing, of course, many wines. Yes, Coppola wine. Winery. So we will be financing his next possible, his next movie, possibly. <laughs> We're going to drink a lot of wine. Yeah. Because I bet we can drink wine faster than scotch. Like, we can easily kill a bottle of wine over the course of a rambling podcast. I believe so. That's, that's easy work. It, it It's really easy to kill a bottle of wine. So. And I'm excited for that because I've only seen sort of the hits. I've seen The Godfather, I've seen Apocalypse Now, but I've never seen uh, a lot of the other, like the 80s output, the 90s output, I've not really seen any of those. Yeah. Or in the 60s, so I'm really excited to jump into that. Well, thanks for tuning in. Sorry we rambled so much. (laughs) But hey, you know, we had to fill in your your time's worth, you know. Yeah, the holidays are coming up. You got to have something to listen to on your commute. Or when you're at work and you're bored, whatever, Pretend that you're hanging out with us trying to you know, figure out she's all that. All right, so our Coppola Cop podcast will drop sometime in December. We'll put it on the same website as yes. this. In January, as soon as we can, the M. Night Shift covers glass, <laughs> which is, oh, it's going to be a good episode. I'm excited. No matter how is this the, the This goes. is the first episode that we'll have reviewed something after having seen it brand new in the theater. Yeah. That's not happened before. And that's what they'll all be from here on out, unless they uncover more weird rewrites. Yes. Uh, or he, there's a time machine thing that he can use and go back and rewrite shitty movies and make them better. Like, Identity would be great if there was a Shyamalan polish to make that better. Oh, that would be really good. <laughs> It'd be really good if we could redo Identity or, or Blanket from our minds. If the part of our brain that hasn't seen Identity, which is played by John Cusack, could kill the part of our brain that has seen Identity, played by that big hulking guy. Yeah, you know, that'd be a good episode. We do post-Shyamalan shitty twist movies that came out in the early aughts where everyone was like, well, here's our twist. It's all in the yeah. mind of a serial killer and it's funny don't expect it to be in... Yeah, because yeah. that was a thing. That would be a good... I mean, there's enough of those that it would merit... 
an episode. An episode. <laughs> and we like talking about movies. I hope you like listening to them as much as we like talking about them. Uh, thanks for tuning in. We will see you at the movies. Goodbye. Shyamalan twist.